what is the relationship between good and evil? Specifically, what I mean to ask uh, is, what is their relationship to one another in regards to power, authority, and rule? Most of our thoughts, I believe, concerning the relationship between good and evil in, in, in this regard is, has been largely shaped by Hollywood and by what we see in the cinemas. For example, you have Star Wars. Uh, you've got the Jedi against the Sith. And if you've never watched that uh, series before, um, you, can, you can begin to think that, um, that evil and good have somewhat of an equal um, standing with one another. Uh, good doesn't have absolute authority to, um, to rule over evil in that. Um, in, in that story, uh, the Sith, evil, has, uh, you, you kind of get to thinking as you're watching this, is, is good going to ultimately win over evil, or is evil going to win over good? Um, you don't uh, see this, uh, this picture of good as having absolute control over evil. But contrary to what Hollywood displays for us in the cinemas, we're going to be looking at a portion in Scripture this morning that's uh, going to show us a different picture of how Hollywood displays the absolute rule and control of good over evil. According to the text in the Gospel of Mark this morning, um, we're going to see that good outnumbers, outmans evil, period, period. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 5, verses, uh, we're going to be going through Mark 5, 1 through 20. Many of you might be familiar with this passage if you've read through the Gospels. It's the account where Jesus Christ has an encounter with a man with an unclean spirit. And um, there's an exchange of words, there's a dialogue in this scene between Christ and the demoniac. And um, eventually, Christ performs an exorcism on this demon-possessed man. And the uh, demon exits this man, and goes into a herd of pigs, eventually falling off of a steep bank and falling to its doom. But before we jump into our passage this morning, I want to um, kind of paint a picture of the context with us. And um, I think that um, we, I've got to take you here to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, because in the Greek text, there's no chapter breaks. This is uh, what's going on between uh, 4, 35 through 41 is a flow of an act- a, a scene that is well connected with chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is one story going on here. And so you can easily miss what's uh, the, the bigger picture or the connection between scriptures if, if you focus solely on the chapter breaks. You've got to realize that that was not in the Greek text. And so these two passages are connected. And I want to set the scene for us this morning uh, before we jump into our text. And we'll begin to see as the message uh, goes, uh, goes on that these two are very much connected. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41... Jesus instructs his disciples to go across to the other side. And as they're going across to the other side, there is a great windstorm. 
that occurs, and the disciples, they get fearful. Water begins to fill the boats, and impending doom is on the rise, and they get fearful for their lives. They think that they're going to die. So they go to Jesus. They wake him up. Funny how Christ is in the midst of chaos and disarray. Christ is sleeping, and he is at peace. And um, he wakes up. Jesus calms the windstorm. He says, peace, be still. And there is peace. And it is still. When Christ gives a command, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. What Christ says will come to fruition. He has absolute authority over the wind and the sea in this, in this scene. He then rebukes the disciples for their fear. Because their fear, we're told, was rooted in unbelief. We see that in verse 40. Um, he says, um, why are you so afraid? Have you still no belief? So they are unbelieving disciples at this point. Um, they, after, after Christ calms the sea and the, uh, the, the storm and the wind, um, they're in awe of what Christ just did. And they ask amongst themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? After the wind and the sea calm, their, um, the object of their fear is rightly placed to the one who should be feared. It's not in the physical realm, but in Christ. Do not fear those that can kill just the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul. And they are in the midst of this very one that can do that, Christ the Lord. And so after... Uh, the, the storm subsides. We're led here to our passage in chapter 5. Verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea. And notice in verse 35 of chapter 4, it says, uh, Christ said, let us go across to the other side. They've arrived at their destination. You see how this story is connected? This is where Christ was trying to get them. And it's said that um, they landed in the country of the Gerizines. This is primarily Gentile territory, which is uh, modern-day Syria. Um, I'm, I'm smiling right now because I made a mistake in geography, <laughs> the first service, and, and um, someone had uh, graciously corrected me. <laughs> <clears throat> Again, this is the, they're in Gentile territory. Uh, seen from verse 1, they're in the country of the Gerizines, but also seen in verse 12 where it says, uh, it says that there is a herd of pigs in this scene. And uh, in, in uh, the Jewish culture, pigs are unclean animals, and you wouldn't find a Jewish man having a herd of pigs. This is a Gentile um, that, that owns this uh, herd of pigs. Uh, in verse 20, we're told that uh, we're, there's mention of the Decapolis, which is a league of ten Greek cities. And, um, and so the, the setting of the scene, where this scene, um, this passage takes place, is in Gentile territory. Now, that has theological significance because Jesus, his main ministry was primarily to the Jews and to Israel. But yet you see glimpses here. Um, God is showing us glimpses that, uh, that salvation and Christ's work doesn't just extend exclusively to the Jews, but it extends outward. Think the, the, the promise or the covenant made with Abraham where God said that I will bless the nations through you. And so... Uh, we see glimpses of God fulfilling his promises through Christ, not just to the Jewish people or to Israel, but to the nations. 
And uh, in verses um, three, uh, in verse two, it says that Jesus steps out of the boat and he's met with this man with an unclean spirit um, who is uh, in the tombs. Um, prior to uh, moving on with the flow of the story, verses three through five were given um, somewhat of a mini summary or a biographical sketch of this man that's uh, got uh, the demons living or residing within him. Verses 3 through 5 is, is, uh, is a pause in the flow of uh, Christ getting off the boat and uh, the rest of the story. We're, we're, giving, uh, we're given um, a sketch of this man's life and, and how he got in the condition that he's in. It's said that um, this man, he, he lived in the tombs. And this is the place where the dead were buried. He practi- practically lived in a gravesite. And uh, we're told that he was a violent man and that neither human hands nor human de- devices could bind him. Verse 4, it says, he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles. No one, no one had the strength to subdue him. Day and night, he cut himself and he would cry. So you begin to see a picture of this man's state, this man's condition. And um, it's not a happy state. It's not a happy condition. This man is in misery. This man is cutting himself. This man is screaming in the night. And he's, um, he, he's in agony. There are other chains that he is bound to. And those chains are not made by human hands. He is spiritually bound. This man is in spiritual bondage. Ephesians 6.11 says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities. This man needed deliverance, but it was not found through worldly or human means. The Talmud has four characteristics for a man that is described as being mad. One being walking abroad at night, spending the night in the grave, tearing one's clothes, Destroying what one was given, the demoniac displayed all four of those characteristics. And when the community saw him um, and couldn't control him, they locked him away, uh, so to speak, to a corner in the tombs. You know, Let, let's not do anything. We don't want anything to do with him. We can't handle him. He's ruining our lives, our way of life. So let's lock him up in a tomb. Let's chain him. Let's bind him. Let's put him in the tombs. You can, you can, can you begin to see the state of this man and the condition in which he's in? He's in spiritual bondage. Sadly, however, sadly, this is how we still respond to many people just like this man, who's not like us, who ruins our way of life. Just like the community he was in, we see people who display the very same characteristics as this man, talking to the air and speaking crazy stuff. You know, you, you, you drive around Fairfield alone, you see um, homeless people that, that, that display the very same characteristics. And, and what do we do? Are we just like the community that this man was in and turn the other cheek and not care as if, uh, you know, let, let someone else take care of that or lock him up, chain him up, um, bind him up, give him drugs, sedate him, let's lock him up. 
Now, I'm not, it's, it's not, to say, not to say that we don't find a refuge for such people to where they can find care and, and, uh, and to, to where they can be uh, kept safe from hurting themselves or uh, hurting others. But are we praying for such people? When we see people in the very same condition that this man was in, are we praying for them or are we thinking, lock that person up, get them away, get them off the streets? Are we making efforts to preach the gospel to such people? Or do we have such a low view of the gospel and think that the gospel is not strong enough to deliver such a one? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. But so often we, we say that we believe in the gospel. We, believe, we say that we believe in the word of God and yet the way that we live our lives, our functional theology is so different from our verbal theology, what we believe to be true. One commentator says that the ultimate purpose of demonic possession is to distort and destroy the divine likeness of man. And I thought about that, that, uh, that comment in regards to Mark chapter 5, and, and it's uh, what, what a spiritual insight, you know, and uh, to, 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 to give a definition or to give a proper perspective of what's going on with this man being possessed by the demon. There's more than meets the eye. There, there's more to what we see. Is there more to what we see on the surface Are we just so caught up in this Western world that all we see is the surface and and we're so blinded to the reality of what's really going on? People saw this man as mad, but in reality he was in spiritual bondage and they failed to see that. Now think about that comment. You know, he said that demonic possession is to distort, its, its purpose is to distort and destroy the divine likeness of man. As I thought about that some more, I began to think of all the troubles in the world today. Could it be more, uh, could there be other reasons as to why things are the way that they are in the world today? Uh, Take, for example, um, abortion. Why is abortion so rampant in our nation today? Could it be more than just people making poor decisions? Yes, that's true. In our sinfulness, we make sinful decisions and they can be devastating and detrimental but could it be more than that? Could it be that the, the enemy is, 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 is oppressing this land? Because um, rather than having anyone come out of the womb that reflects some glimpses of God's glory, he would rather have none. Yes, we are fallen. We live in a fallen world, and people uh, uh, are, are depraved, and, and, and man is corrupted, and yet we still are able to see glimpses of God through fallen man. When you see someone acting good or acting in love, that is still a glimpse of the glory of who God is. And so begin to ask yourself, why is there so much abortion going on in this nation? Could it just be that there is spiritual oppression going on in the land and that the enemy does not want any glimpses of the glory of God being displayed? Pray, brothers and sisters, pray that God would do something about that. What about the family unit? What about the family structure? Now, um, uh, why is there so many dysfunctional families? This is, this is hitting home to me. So many troubled families, strife, fighting against one another. I, this, this hits home for me. 
Why, why is there so much um, fighting and bickering against um, father, son, mother, daughter? Why, why all this? Now, if you think about the, the person of God, God is father, God is son, God is spirit. In and of himself, God, the triune God, is a community. In and of himself, God is a family. He is a community. From eternity past, before there ever was this world, God was a family in and of himself. Therefore, could it, not be, could it be possible that there is so much dysfunction in the family due to spiritual oppression so that families who aren't um, operating in love and care towards one another don't rightly reflect the image of the triune God that we serve? Could it be that it's more than just your son or your daughter um, going astray, giving you trouble? Could it just be more than that? Could it be that the enemy is encroaching upon your household to destroy any glimpses of the glory of God that can be reflected in this world? Could it be? Now, what about marriage? What about the marriage relationship? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ and his relationship to the bride. So when, when wife and husband are bickering and there's uh, the divorce is, is, um, is, is, is so prevalent in our nation today, could it be more than just he said this, she said that? She said, she did this, he did that. Could it be that there is spiritual oppression going on in the household? Could it be that the enemy is preventing the glory of God from being displayed in your life and in your family's life? Think about these things, you know? We tend to, we, we tend to just look at the surface and don't look deeper at the spiritual aspect of what's really going on. Because this man, there was more to this man's condition than just acting crazy the text tells us that he was in spiritual bondage, that he was possessed by demons. Pray for spiritual discernment in these last days, brothers and sisters. Pray. Now, coming, picking up where we left off in verse 6, verses 3 through 5, we've, we were given a biographical sketch of this man and his condition. In verse 2, it says that uh, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, he was approached by this man with an unclean spirit. There was a pause in 3 through 5, and verse 6 picks back up that, that flow of action that was going on in the scene. And so uh, we are told that this demon-possessed man fell down before Jesus. Now, although this is a sign of submission, I do not believe that it is a sign of worship. Yes, the Greek word there for worship is used when it says that he fell down, but the demon does not worship Christ. He does pay homage and, and, and to Christ, and he, he do, but he does so loathingly and with resentment. He doesn't do this willingly. He bows before Christ in, uh, in, 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 in a spiteful way. But we begin to see, we begin to see the superiority of, of Jesus Christ over evil. And I went in the, in the beginning of the message in my introduction, I forgot to say that when I was talking about good, I wasn't talking about some abstract idea. When I was talking about good, I meant God. That God is good. 
And so now we begin to see that God, who is good, has absolute authority over evil. Hence why this demon-possessed man bows or falls down before Christ. Whether they like him or not, there is no question as to who has absolute authority. Notice, too, that the demon knows Jesus' name. They also refer to him as the son of the most high God, verse 7. Now, this is not a messianic term that the demons are referring to Christ, but it is a term that describes the divinity or the deity of Christ, son of the most high God. Contrary to what others are saying, Jesus Christ is not a mere created being. He's not an angel. The text itself shows us that Jesus Christ is God. Even the demons know that. The demon shows signs of resistance. Now, again, even though, that the, even though the demon is bowed down before Christ, um, and, and he calls him by his name, during this time, during the time of Christ, to call someone by their name was believed to give power over them. So what we have going on here uh, when, uh, when, when the demon is invoking the name of God um, for Christ not to torment him, there's, um, there's warfare going on here. There, this, is, this, is, this demon is resisting Christ and what he's doing. When he says, uh, I adjure you by the name of God, that is, I believe, as one commentator points out, that um, it might be the demon's attempt to reverse Christ's attempt in exorcism. Verse 7. And I, I say that because if you go to Acts chapter 19, verse 13, it's a, 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 the, the passage where we're told of uh, the seven sons of Skewos try to perform an exorcism on a demon. And um, they, they invoke the name of Christ. I adjure you by the name of Jesus Christ, um, in whom Paul speaks of, come out of that man. And then, but the demon wins over what they tried to, their, their, um, their attempt to perform exorcism on him. Um, but that very same formula that they try to use to perform exorcism on that demon, um, this demon is using against Christ. I believe that's what's happening here when he says, I adjure you by the name of God, do not torment me. I believe that he's trying to reverse what Christ is doing in his um, exercise of exorcism. The demons try and try to resist Christ and um, this battle, this warfare between good and evil. Uh, the outcome shows us who has ultimate authority. And who has ultimate dominion over all of creation? The demons, whose name is Legion, asked to transfer themselves from this man in whom they abode in into the herd of pigs. And Jesus grants them that request. Notice, too, that the demons have to ask Jesus for permission to do anything. Authority. Who has authority? Good or evil? We see evil submitting to the authority of God who is good. And they're granted their, their request and 
as soon as they transfer into the herd of pigs, they, um, they fall off of a steep bank and fall to their doom. This man is set free. Christ set this man free. But notice, notice too the parallel between the previous passage where Jesus Christ said, peace be still to the wind of the sea, and it was calm. There was great calm, actually. Um, notice the adjectives. There, there was great calm. There wasn't just calm. There was great calm. And notice how Christ, who has the authority to bring peace and calm to the created realm, has the authority to bring peace and calm and deliverance in the spiritual realm, over the demonic realm. Christ has absolute authority. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at him, brothers and sisters. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. He is Christ, the risen God. He's not just a man that we read about. This is God, very God that I'm preaching to you guys about this morning. Take great joy and courage that Jesus Christ is God and he has authority. This is Jesus. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. John 8, 36. Amen and amen. The man who was possessed with the demons, he needed an alien deliverance, meaning he needed a foreign deliverance, a source of deliverance that was not found within himself, within the world. The man could not set himself free from the spiritual bondage that he was in. He was supernaturally enslaved, meaning that he needed a supernatural power source that was greater than uh, that which the supernatural demons um, uh, had. And it was found in Christ. My friends, in 2007, when I was in Claybank County Jail, long before my sentence was ever finished, I was set free. I had other chains that were broken off of me. And it was not the... Uh, my bondage to uh, drugs or alcohol. It was none of these things. I was free from sin. Christ delivered me spiritually. My spiritual bondage was ended because of what Christ did, because of his authority to, to set me free. Is it not the same for you, even though you may not have had the same background as I had in, in drugs or alcohol? Well, well, even if you were raised in the church, were, what if you were living a self-righteous, legalistic lifestyle and God set you free from that as well? That is an awesome testimony. Christ sets us free. He is the one who delivers us. Notice also that it was Christ that came to this man's rescue. This man did not go seeking for Christ. He was enslaved and he was in bondage. You see, God, God is the pursuer of his people. Christ is the one who came to seek and save that which was lost. And it's through him that we find deliverance. Amen? Amen. How many of you today are going through struggles? How many of you battle-weary saints you children of God are going through struggles already. 
2014 welcomed me with a storm. But how am I going to deal with that storm? Am I going to run away, um, just stick my head in my pillow and, and weep in and, and depression and sadness? Or am I going to look at 2013 and look at how much grace was dispensed in my life? How many times have I felt the weight and pressures of this world bring me down? And yet, all those nights, the grace of God delivered me. The grace and the authority of God sustained me. How many of you, though, how many of us are, are fail to, to depend on Christ? We're, spi- we're fighting a spiritual warfare, but how many of us are fighting with worldly weapons and worldly means? Rather than being Christ-sufficient, Christ-dependent, we are dependent on our self-will. We are DIY people, do-it-yourself people, right? I can do this all by myself. I can do this on my own through my human means. If I conjure up enough strength, I'm not going to look at the computer. I'm not going to look at sites that I shouldn't look at. Men, how many of us are striving to overcome sin and temptation through our own means? And apart from Christ, what about women? Women, you're not exempt from this too. We're all sinners. So you're in this category too. But women, I I love you guys. You you guys are my sisters in the Lord. But how many of you are battling through control issues or parenting issues? Um, And you're trying to overcome this. You've been made aware. The Spirit has convicted you of what's going on, the sin in your life. And, And yet you... You're still trying to, to have control over your kids' lives, thinking that if you just do this, if, if, if I just do this, if I just do that, then there will be change in my child. How foolish of you to think or depend upon your means. I'm, not, to say, not to say that you don't discipline, encourage, love, rebuke your children. No, we do all these things, but we do not do this relying on our own strength. In our own means, we do so, moving forward, marching forward, living dependent upon Christ and not ourselves. Notice, too, I've uh, noticed three responses to Christ within this passage. Verse 12, it says that the demons begged that Jesus would send them away. Verse 17, it says that the townspeople who had heard about what Jesus did begged him to leave their land. Verse 18, the man delivered begged Jesus that he might be with him. In each one of those passages, beg, beg, beg. Same Greek word being used there, but three different responses to Christ. When Christ approaches upon your life, when he makes his way to your front door, You can either, like the demons, run away from Christ. Send us to the pigs. We want to move away from you. Or, like the townspeople, push Christ away. Get out of our land. Get out of our country. Or you can be like the man who was possessed by the demon, who embraced him as his all-sufficient Lord and Savior. Three responses. How are you responding to Christ this morning? How am I Responding to Christ. 
Notice also the true motivation behind obedience. It was because of who Jesus was to him, Savior. And it was what Jesus did for him. He delivered him. That this man wanted to follow Christ. This man, he had an affectionate and worshipful desire to be with Jesus. Look at the way that it's, it's, uh, it's worded. He said, um, he says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This man wanted to be with Christ. How could he not after what Christ had just done for him? How could you not and how could I not after what Christ has done for you, after what Christ has done for me? How could we not? Unless probably it's um, in our sin we find, to, uh, we find other things in this world as more tantalizing or more pleasing than Christ, right? I, I, I like watching movies and sometimes I get in, in a rut and, and I, I just fill myself with, I'm just watching movies or whatever. And I find, all, not to say that those things are, are, are bad, but when they begin to take up the majority of your time, you begin to, it's, 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 a, it's a reflection of our heart and what we truly cherish and who we truly love. Is it Christ or is it the world? But how could we not love Christ after all that he's done for us, rescued us, delivered us, and not merely to destroy our pleasure, to be a killjoy in our lives, to take away the things that we deemed or found as more, most desirable. No. He delivered you. Yes, he, he saved you from your sins. He did that. He died for your sins on the cross. But he also died so that you would find your pleasure ultimately in him. He did not come to just destroy your pleasure. He saved you so that your pleasure and your desire would be in him. Just like this man. He begged him begged him that he might be with him. Where are we this morning on that? Are we like the others, the, the demons who begged to go away from Christ or like the townspeople who begged Christ to go away? Notice also that um, this, uh, this man who desired to be with Christ um, was denied that request. Look, he, said, he begged him to, that he might be with him. But verse 19 says that he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home. Christ said, go home. Christ said, don't, you can't follow me. You've got to go home. Kind of awkward because when Christ is calling his disciples, he's telling them to follow me, right? And yet in this verse, it says, uh, Christ is saying, no, don't follow me. Well, ultimately, I believe that it's, it's because it's not ultimately what we want for our lives. It's what Christ wants for our lives. This man wanted to go with Christ, but Christ had other purposes for him. You might want to go somewhere with Christ. You might want to do something for Christ. You might want to make a difference for Christ. But Christ is saying, no, go home. Go home and tell your friends all that the Lord has done for you. I, being in seminary, I want to be 
a pastor or a missionary. I want to get there, but am I going to wait upon the Lord? Or what if he decides to change my course of destination and says, no, do something else? Am I willing to submit to what Christ wants for me, or am I going to try to, uh, uh, to fight with Christ and have my way? It's not ultimately what we want, but what Christ wants for us. As we close this morning, um, notice also that um, twice in this passage, there is, in, uh, there is uh, God is showing us, uh, giving us uh, a picture or, uh, of who Jesus is. Remember in the, in the middle of the passage where the demons refer to Christ in his, in his divine position as son of the most high God. When Christ tells this man to go and tell his friends how much the Lord has done for you, Christ speaking in the third person there, he says, go tell them all that the Lord has done for you. Now, if you're familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, 6,814 times, the name Yahweh is translated the Lord in the Greek. Um, Just one example to show you guys in, in the beginning of this gospel, Mark quotes Isaiah and he says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah and that Old Testament text is talking about Yahweh and yet in the New Testament text, it's referring to Christ. Now look at this. In verse 20, he says, and he went away after uh, Christ told him to go tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. Verse 20, it says that he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man saw who Christ really was, that he wasn't just a man, that he wasn't just a created being. He wasn't an angel, but it was God in the flesh that he was confronted with. Twice in this passage, we're told that Jesus is God. We serve God. Does that not blow our minds away? Are we not in awe of who we serve? Why is it then that when, we, uh, when, when we're, we're given commands by the Lord to live such a, a certain way to follow his commands, is, 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 it, um, is, is it so hard for us? We tug and we pull with Christ. No, I don't want to. But how could we not when we have been confronted and our lives have been invaded not just by a man, but God himself has come into our lives So, brothers and sisters, as we begin 2014, remember that deliverance is not found and and, and the power to overcome sin and temptation or whatever it is, whatever trial it is that you're going through, does not come from yourself or me. It comes from outside of us. Just like the demoniac where no one could help him. Absolutely no one could help him except for Christ. So too with us. In the trials that lay ahead, in the sin that we battle and strive against, it is not 
overcome through our means or through our strength, but it is overcome through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And also, deliverance, what does it result in? Verse 18, deliverance results in praise and worship. Deliverance results in praise and worship. So, how many of you have already been delivered from from the curse of sin as far as being justified and declared righteous in Christ? Is that not enough for you and me to proclaim to our friends, just like this demoniac proclaimed Christ? Is that not enough for us to tell people of who Jesus Christ is to us and what he's done for us? Or do we not find him as glorious to proclaim? He is glorious, beloved. He is glorious and worthy to proclaim and and tell even into the air. I remember one time I was preparing for a sermon and I was house-sitting for someone and um, there was nobody there except for her pets. I was, I was preaching to her pets. I was like, you guys need to hear this. You know, it's like, they, you just want, he is that glorious, is he not? He is that glorious. May he open our hearts and peel back the veil from our hearts from not seeing the glory of Christ. What is the purpose of deliverance also? It's a... Um, to rescue us. Deliverance rescues us. And, and Christ working in our lives to set us free from our chains against sin and, and this world. Verse 20, it says that when this man proclaimed him in all of the Decapolis, that people marveled. Are people marveling at Christ because of your life? Are people in awe of who Jesus Christ is Because of your life? Friends, it's it's, it's not about us. It's all about Christ. It's all about putting him on display and us getting out of the way and putting our risen Lord, our God, our Christ, our Jesus, it's about putting him on display. Our lives are about making much of him, not making much of us. And so as you go through 2014 and as it welcomes you or as you begin to experience trials and tribulations, as as God gives you sufficient grace to overcome through his authority, give glory to God. Give praise to Christ for what he does for you and who he is to you. And let the world marvel at your Jesus and at my Jesus. He is worthy. He has authority to overcome, not us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Lord, may you apply it to our lives and may it reap fruits that bring forth praise and worship and adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ.